Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. Today happens to be show number 24. And today what we're going to be talking about is something called seller financing, sometimes referred in some cases to creative financing. I'd kind of like to preface things a little bit by telling you that if you probably are watching this show and you go out and you talk to a real estate agent and you ask them about some of the programs that we're going to be talking about today, they probably would say that instructor is a little bit cracked or whacked or really is making it up as he goes along. And the reason why is because probably today, uh, in today's market, we have not, we have had where sellers have the ability to go to a normal lender uh, and obtain financing. So in other words, we've talked about a number of those programs. We talked about conventional financing. We've talked about government-backed programs such as FHA, VA, and CalVet. We've talked a little bit about those programs that uh, help buyers with down payment assistance, such as uh, uh, I believe the last time we talked about programs that were in the Davis area or in uh, Roseville area. And I mentioned during that period of time that there were uh, probably a, a lot of cities and counties, if you will, will have various types of financing programs that are available for sellers that are getting ready to buy their first home where they need some assistance with down payment or they need lower rates of interest on their loans. Today, though, in seller financing, what we're going to be talking about is where we happen to have where, uh, let's say, go into the future or even actually into the past. Like, for example, in the uh, late 70s and the early 80s, when I was working for a title insurance company here in Sacramento, we had where the interest rates got to be extremely high. What was happening during that period of time is that uh, uh, the uh, Federal Reserve, who was the chairman, happened to be Paul Volcker, big tall guy, uh, they determined that uh, one of the biggest problems we had in the economy was inflation. So in order to resolve that problem, what they decided to do was, like they have been doing now recently, is to raise the interest rates. And they continued to raise them higher and higher and higher and higher. And during that period of time, we went through lots of uh, foreclosures. I can remember uh, where uh, there were foreclosures on entire subdivisions. There were foreclosures on homes that were located up in Lake Tahoe on Tahoe Keys and prime uh, real estate. <clears throat> so, again, the reason why this was happening was because the interest rates kept going higher and higher with the idea in mind that they were trying to limit uh, our ability as consumers to buy things and therefore stop inflation because it was like, hey, if you don't buy it today, it's going to cost more tomorrow. During that period of time, one of the things that happened was that the interest rates got to be so high that if that regular consumers could not afford to pay those higher rates of interest to buy a home. As I've mentioned many, many times through this class and other classes that I teach, is that people still have a need to sell homes. They still need to sell them. I mean, things happen such as job transfers, uh, divorces. People still need to, uh, for example, die and leave properties to somebody else. And uh, so there's a lot of reasons why people still continue to need to buy and sell. The problem is, is if you don't have financing and the institutions are charging a very high interest rate because they're actually controlled or regulated by the Federal Reserve, and that's why that's happening, 
then the buyer sits there or the seller sits there and says, what can we do? What can we do in order to affect this sale of this property? So anyway, when it comes down to that, we start talking about creative financing. In other words, finding creative methods in order to be able to finance the sale of the property. So I want to caution you about a couple things when you read this chapter. You really, really need to make sure that if you are involved in any of these transactions that you really do sit down with your real estate broker, get a lot of good advice. There are This can be a very good thing to help a transaction go forward, but it also can have a lot of problems. There are a lot of potholes, uh, minefields that you can get yourself into if you don't have the proper counseling and you don't counsel your clients correctly. And again, uh, you may be in this business for a number of years where you're just used to the fact of, hey, I go down to the bank, my client goes to the, down to the bank, gets a loan, and gets the property. This, these programs are going to kick in when financing gets very, very tight. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start in the beginning. I'm going to go ahead through and explain the different kinds of programs that, we, that they talk about in the book. Uh, the first part usually deals with something where the owner is going to carry back the financing, okay? And primarily, that's what we're talking about, where the owner, the people that own the property now, are in a situation where, for whatever reason, selling the property and getting out from underneath that monthly payment is more important to, than to receiving cash, as it stands right now. In other words, they need to get out from underneath that payment. So consequently, they're willing to help with the financing of the, of the property. So I'm going to go through and uh, pull out some things out of the book as usual, show those to you, and then talk a little bit more about that in detail. So we're going to start over here in the beginning. And it says, in a tight money, and this is under seller financing, in tight money markets, it is not uncommon for the seller to make a deal to finance part of the purchase price. Mortgage money from traditional lenders may be too costly in terms of interest rates or simply unavailable. Buyers may be unable to come up with the necessary cash for the down payment required by a conventional mortgage or simply wish to take advantage of low interest rate on the seller's existing mortgage. Okay. In any case, sellers can often enhance the saleability of their properties by offering financing in the form of purchase money mortgages or land contracts. And we'll talk more about that. So the first part of this is just saying, you know, if your house happens to be located in its most simplest format in a subdivision, subdivision meaning like a, you know, a planned community, both properties are sitting next to each other, two properties. They're both trying, you know, the owners are trying to sell the property for the same amount of money. One person or one home happens to be where the seller turns around and says, you know, if, if you want to buy my house, you have to go down to the bank and get a brand new loan. On the other hand, you happen to have somebody that's right next door to you that happens to have a house for sale and says, you know what, I'll turn around and I've already talked to the bank and they will allow you to assume the existing financing, which we'll talk about in more detail. That's not a lot easier said than done. And then I will carry my equity back. So I, I'll, I'm willing to take a, you know, a $20,000 down payment. I'll carry my equity in the form of a second note and deed of trust and let you assume the first. If you take a look at both of those, bearing in mind that the interest rates are very high, probably the person that's offering the financing the assistance in the area of carrying back the loan would probably sell their house first 
before the other house would go. That's the idea. It's an enticement, an inducement, a way to make the transaction go. Okay, so we want to talk about that. Now, when we talk about this kind of financing, I always like to think about things as usual in extremes, in two different extremes. So in the extremes that we may have, and I'll come back here for a second, is that in one extreme, we may actually have where the seller has the property completely paid off. It's totally free and clear. If that's the case, then the seller does not have to get anybody's permission from any lender to go ahead and carry the loan. In fact, in some cases, not to cloud the issue up, not to make it more complicated, but there are times in which the seller may decide that it's advantageous to them to go ahead and carry the financing. As an example, maybe they have a lot of equity, or maybe let's say the house is free and clear. They're looking at the fact that, you know, you know, I want to get a better rate of return on my money. If I, if I sold the property and I took that cash and went down to the bank, I may get a fairly low rate of interest on the loan. But if I carry back my loan, if I carry back the financing, I may get a higher rate. For example, you may have where the bank, if we take a look at a lot of banks today, if you just go down and put fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in the bank, they may only pay you, oh, maybe in the neighborhood of 2 or 3%. And that's it, if you're lucky. Uh, on the other hand, if you carry the loan, you might be able to get 6 or 7% return. So there might be an advantage for you as a seller or for a seller to do that. But keep in mind, on one extreme, we have where the seller totally has the house paid off. They don't have to ask anybody's permission. They can go ahead and do it. There's no other people involved in the transaction except for the buyer and the seller. And the seller is just going to act like a regular bank. They're going to look at the person's credit rating. They're going to look at what the down payment is, and they're going to make a decision on whether they're going to lend money or not. On the other extreme, all the way over to the other side, we're talking about where maybe the property has some existing loans against it. And that might be a case where, for example, you own a piece of property and the property is selling for $300,000. You may have where there's an existing first on it in the amount of $150,000. You just can't allow the, the buyer to come in and take that loan over. You have to go down to the bank and maybe ask and get permission from them. You may find out that uh, maybe the bank is going to allow that to happen, but they're going to look at the credit rating of the person that's buying the property. They're going to look at their credit history or credit rating, credit history. They're going to look at their income. They're going to actually look at them and, and maybe even qualify them as if they were a brand-new borrower. Now, there might be some incentive to do this. For example, maybe the costs of the loan of that assumption is going to be a little bit less than if you got a brand new loan. There might be some costs that might not be involved with uh, that kind of an assumption versus getting a brand new loan from the lender. So anyway, keep that in mind. So in that case, you have to get the bank's permission in order to allow the transaction to go forward. Then you may very well carry your equity in the form of a second note and deed of trust. So you want to keep that in mind, both extremes. And I cannot overemphasize enough that you really need to make sure that you read the fine print of this, of the, of the documents that people are signing to make sure that they're legal and everything is above board. Otherwise, you can end up in, a, if you're the agent that's involved, you can end up in court getting sued like crazy because you advised your clients incorrectly. Very, very important that it's all above board. There could be a time when maybe 
Maybe the buyer shouldn't be buying, and maybe the seller needs to be thinking about another another tact, not unless they understand exactly what's going on. It's very, very important. So anyway, to go from there, it says the seller is taking a risk with the purchase money mortgage, but it may be justified if it allows the sale uh, or to proceed or enables the seller to get a higher price for his or her home. Just keep in mind the fact that there may be no other alternative at the time you're doing this for the seller of the property. They may have no other choice. They're faced with the fact of either holding on to the house. Well, actually, their choice would be this. Hold on to the house, continue to make the monthly payments, and rent it out. Okay? That might be their choice. And maybe that's the way they have to go. Maybe they decide this creative financing is not the way for them to go. They don't understand it. They don't want to do it and just don't, don't go there. Okay, but if they do that, then they're going to have to take the normal risks somebody else, you know, would do, such as renting the house out, you know, qualifying the renters, making sure they're making their monthly rent payments, so on and so forth. But that could be an option. Okay, it's not uncommon in a tight money market for people to hold on to their rental property and hold on to it for a number of years until the market gets better and then turn around and sell it. In fact, a lot of people end up becoming real estate investors, not because they want to, but because they ha- they're stuck with the house. You know, they can't sell it. And from an economic standpoint, the best thing to do is hold on to it. And what's really kind of funny in that case, I've had a number of friends of mine that have done that. And actually, after they've held on it, onto it for a number of years and have felt really good about it, and their intention was never to get into real estate, they have been very happy <laughs> because... If they hit it right, it's just where that's really helped them uh, as far as their retirement income goes or maybe for some other large expenditure that they have in the future. So there's not, you know, if you have the ability to hold on to it, it might be your way of getting into the uh, real estate investment business too. But keep that in mind though. Now going on from there, it says, as with any other form of seller financing, purchase money financing can be advantageous if the seller does not need the immediate cash from the sale. So the seller... In this case, did not need, you know, that's ha- this has to be one of the ingredients or as part of the recipe in order to make this thing work. Because the profit from the sale is spread over several years, the seller may benefit from lower rates of income taxes. That's another thing, too, which falls into another area of uh, actually an income tax called installment sales. So, in other words, that's something you would sit down and talk to your accountant with wh- where, Instead of receiving that big gain in one year, and that's kind of important too. You know, many cases, if we sell real estate, we're going to end up having to pay some kind of a capital gain on it, possibly. Uh, you know, especially if it's an investment piece of real estate. And it might be advantageous after you, the person talks to their accountant to say, you know what, why don't we set this thing up so that instead of you receiving that great big lump of cash, at the, at the same time that you're in your, you know, earning a large amount of money and all of it just basically going to the, you know, state franchise tax board or the IRS, why don't we just go ahead and spread that out? So this could be one of the reasons why the seller is willing to carry the financing. Could be for that specific reason. So to go back here, uh, anyway, so it said because the profit from the sale is spread out over several years, the seller may benefit from the lower uh, rate of income tax. Uh, then it goes on and gives you a special note. It says, taking the full profit at the time of the sale could push the seller into a higher tax bracket. 
but when the profit is paid on an installment basis, only the amount actually received is given in the year considered taxable income for that year. Again, this is something that the that the seller should sit down and talk to their tax accountant. And if you think that that's not important, I, I call my accountant on a pretty regular basis to ask them questions on how it's going to affect, for example, if I'm going to sell something or I'm going to do some major improvement, how that would affect my income taxes. Why? Because they're in the business every day, day in and day out, and they know it better than I do. Okay, so then it starts out here, and it gives you an example. Uh, it says an unencumbered property. That's what we talked about. In other words, this person owes no money against the property. So it says the simplest form of a purchase money financing is where the seller has clear title to the property free of any mortgages or any other liens. That's the, on the one extreme. And it gives you an example here. I'm going to go ahead and read through this and try to explain it a little bit um, you know, so that it kind of makes hopefully a little bit of sense because some of these examples get to be a little bit convoluted. It says, Grandma Perkins decides to move to her sister's farm in the country and wants to sell her townhouse. Okay, I think that's pretty clear cut. We can see that. She's getting near retirement age or something like that, okay? The mortgage on the townhouse has long since paid, been paid, so she's paid it off. Mr. and Mrs. Jenkins want to buy her townhouse but cannot qualify for conventional financing. Uh, however, Grandma believes that they are honest <laughs> and reliable people who can be trusted to pay off the loan. So she offers them the following deal. Sales price is $90,000 with $8,000 down payment and the balance in the form of a purchase money loan secured by a deed of trust with Grandma as the beneficiary, okay, on the loan, just like you would with the bank. Beneficiary on the loan. Interest will be accrued at, and then it goes on from there, at the rate of 6% for the first year and will increase one-half of 1% per year until it reaches 7.5%. So it's a graduated payment type of a mortgage, okay, where it will stay for the balance of the 30-year loan term. So then after that period of time, after it goes from 6, so what will happen is that the first year it will be 6, then 6.5, then 7, then it will go to 7.5, and, and then after that it will remain constant for the balance of the 30-year loan, okay, uh, which we would call graduated payment mortgage. Payments are to be interest only for the first six years and the principal then fully amortized over the balance of the loan. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get these people into the property. So what's happening is on, on the advantage to the person on one side, the, the grandma, she's, maybe she's doing this because she's getting a higher price for her property. Maybe because of the fact that there are some costs that are being saved because there's not a lot of uh, some of the costs that lenders may impose, okay, because she's doing her own underwriting, if you will. She's looking at the property herself. She's making those decisions. Um, so that might be the advantage to her. The advantage to the buyers is the fact that they're getting in with lower down payment. They're getting in where their payments are graduated over a period of time. They're only paying interest only in the beginning, so they're not paying interest in principal, so their payments are staying as low as possible. And then they're going to have a fully amortized loan after that, after I think it said six years, so it'll be fairly safe if they want to stay in it. So that, that would be on one extreme. Okay. The next one that you're going to have is where we have an assumption, and this is what we call encumbered property. Encumbered means that you owe some money against the property, 
Okay, it could be a large amount, a small amount, some kind of an amount of money. Okay, so I'm going to read some of this now. Where it says, because many residential properties are encumbered by existing mortgages or deed of trust, seller financing often involves the assumption or refinancing of existing debt. There are several ways to deal with an existing mortgage. Perhaps the most simplest method is to allow the buyer to assume the liability on the note. Now, I've mentioned this before. You have to be very, very extremely careful and cautious when you're talking about assuming somebody's loan. Okay, extremely careful. Okay, because assumption, it's assumptions are not all the same. You know, there's different types of assumptions. And so you as the real estate professional need to understand how they work and make sure you read all the contracts. And also, you need to make sure the clients understand what's going on. You need to make sure the seller understands and you make sure the buyer understands. Very, very important. I mean, really sit them down and make sure they understand. I would almost like to give them a hundred question exam or something to say, if you don't pass this exam, you don't get the financing or you as a seller can't, you know, can't make the loan because you want to make darn sure they really do understand truly what they're getting themselves into. Uh, the reason why I say that is because this, keep in mind that this is usually when a seller is having a difficult time selling a property. So they're under a certain amount of pressure, maybe a lot of pressure. The buyer is having a difficult time finding something to buy because the interest rates are high. They're both in a situation where there's some pressure on both sides where they want to make something happen and they may not really pay much attention to the details. Later on, you find out as a real estate broker or agent that you have, you know, the, the, the buyer goes into default or the seller is not getting their payments or the seller is not making the payments or some other thing happens. And the next thing you know, you're in court and you're getting sued. So you want to make sure everybody knows what in the world's going on. Very, very important. I'd rather walk away from a deal and say forget about it than to take a chance of having people in there that don't understand what they're getting themselves into. And, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just they need to understand this totally. So anyway, an assumption, it says, if the seller's existing mortgage does not contain an alienation clause, a due-on-sale clause, it is assumable, meaning that if it doesn't specifically say that the loan is due and payable on the sale, transfer, or long-term lease, or anything of the property. If it doesn't have in the, anything in there to that effect, then it is normally assumable. Okay. Um, down here it says the buyer can simply agree. Now, what, what can happen here is if that's the situation, the buyer can simply agree to take over the payment of the seller's debt and with the terms of the note unchanged. So if the lender cannot call the loan or do anything about it, that means that the, the incentive on the loan is that the buyer can take over that existing, hopefully lower rate of interest loan. All right. The property will still serves as the basic security for the loan, but the buyer becomes the primary, primarily liable for the repayment of the debt. If there is a foreclosure and the proceeds are insufficient to satisfy the debt, the lender may sue the buyer for deficiency. That's another thing, too, that you want to keep in mind that you need to have an attorney's advice on how that works. Remember, when we're talking about deeds of trust and foreclosures and whether or not you can get a deficiency judgment or not, all depends upon the kind of loan, the kind of circumstances whether or not the person is going to go into judicial foreclosure versus the statutory foreclosure. So there's a lot of details in which you want to find out from 
the attorney. And let me, let me mention another thing, too. You will find out if these types of programs become popular. In other words, like right now, if you went out, unless you found some agent that had been in the business for years, the, the newer people are usually not going to have a lot of experience doing this. But let's say, for example, the interest rates do start to climb substantially higher and property's just sitting on the market and it's not moving. What's going to happen is people are going to be sort of forced into trying to explore ways to move the property. You may find out they'll go through a period of time in which they're talking to their accountants, they're talking to their attorneys. The title insurance companies are getting involved in finding out how they're going to insure these documents, and there's a lot of discussion going on. And that may happen for a period of time before they actually, everybody gets sort of things formalized and understands what's really happening. In other words, you know, your brokerage company may be going for a while with counsel from the attorney to say, listen, if you're going to be involved in this kind of a loan, then you need to have the, the buyers or the sellers sign these types of disclosure statements. So there can be some time until things start to become formalized or standardized, if you will, because it's almost like creating a brand-new market that doesn't even exist right now, the way, the way that we understand the Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac, and, and, and primary markets. So we're creating something that people are not familiar with. So it may take some time to, for, for things to get sort of formalized. Uh, going from there, uh, it talks about assumptions and releases, and I've talked about this before. Uh, I'll go through this, and I want to make sure everybody understands assumption and release. An assumption can take two forms. The first case is an agreement strictly between the buyer and the seller. In other words, the lender is not involved. Uh, the buyer assumes the liability for the loan, but the seller is not completely released from responsibility. He or she remains secondary liable. If the lender cannot recover the loan amount from the buyer or through foreclosure, it may sue the seller for a deficiency in order for the seller to be relieved of this responsibility. He or she must obtain a release from the lender. Okay? In this instance, the lender agrees to accept the buyer as a new mortgagor and to release the seller from all obligations on the mortgage. Okay? Remember that if you just give somebody the coupon book to make the monthly payments and don't talk to the lender and the lender does not release you from the loan, then you, if you're the seller, are still liable on that loan. Your name is going to show up in the event of a foreclosure. Uh, very important that you understand that. So when we talk about a release, we're talking about a formal release, going to the lender and saying to the lender, hey, I've got this person over there. This Here he is, or she is. Name is Jim and Joe Smith, Jim and Mary Smith. And we want you to do whatever is necessary to go ahead and approve them to have them take over this loan and make sure that the seller, who happens to be old Pat Hogarty, gets released totally from the loan. Now, what is your process and what is your procedure? And, and finding out what that happens to be. Very, very important, okay? You don't want your clients getting these messages that, you know, they sold the house, you know, two, three years ago, and now it's in foreclosure, and now they're calling you wanting to know what goes on. Okay, so assumption and release. Uh, I think they have an example here in the book, and I'm going to try to go through this, um, uh, see if I can explain it. <laughs> okay. See if I can go through here and explain this uh, so it'll make some sense, maybe. 
Okay, let me see if I can blow this up a little bit before I get started. Maybe a little bigger. Okay. First of all, we talk about this guy, Ned Taylor. Ned Taylor sells a rental house to Sam Jones, who assumes Ned's existing $90,000 loan. So a couple things we want to keep in mind is, is that this is a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a rental property. You know, it could be a single family home, a duplex, a condo, a townhouse, but it's a rental property. Okay. Ned, who's the guy that's selling it, Ned does not get a release. Ned does not get a release from the lender. A year later, with $88,000 still owing on the mortgage, Sam encounters financial difficulties and decides to bail out. He leaves his obligation behind but does not leave a he leaves his obligations behind but does not leave a comforting address. Now that's the problem that we have. You know, you have the seller carries or allows this uh, assumption to happen and the buyer because they have a small amount of money as a down payment, tiny they have really nothing on the table to lose. What happens is, is they run into some kind of financial problem, such as they can't pay their child care, they get a divorce, they lose their job, they get sick or whatever, and they just say, forget it, I'm leaving town. End of discussion. I'm going to move back with my parents, and you're stuck with it, okay? You're stuck with the mess of trying to figure it out. Uh, he leaves obligation behind, does not leave a forwarding address, so you can't even get a hold of the guy. The mortgage payments are not made, so the lender forecloses obtaining only $70,000 at the foreclosure sale due to the dilapidated condition in which Sam's tenants left the property. Now, keep in mind that usually whenever anybody has a problem, a financial problem, and I've seen this many, many times, usually they're not only not making the monthly payments, but they're usually not keeping the property up. If we go out there, we find out that the lawns need to be cut, the flowers are overgrown, there's, if there was a leak in the roof, nobody was taking care of it. In other words, you could end up with something that you sold, if you're the seller of this, with something back that's going to cost you a lot of money to get fixed up. In other words, because they haven't been taking care of it. Okay? I have seen, for example, foreclosures where people have sold all of the appliances in the kitchen. In other words, you walk in, the kitchen is gone. You know, the, the, the stove's gone, the refrigerator's gone, the sink's gone, everything is gone. So, got to keep that in mind. Okay, so anyway, the mortgage payments are not made. Okay, $70,000. Sam's tenants left the property. By the time of the sale, the total amount owed, including delinquent interest and costs of the foreclosure and the sale, reaches $93,500. So, you know, you, you've been accumulating costs because you haven't been making payments and so on and so forth. Leaving a deficiency of $23,500. So in other words, you owe $93,500. You sell it for $70,000. You have a deficiency of $23,500. Okay, that the lender is stuck with. Okay, they don't get. Okay, the lender cannot locate Sam to collect the deficiency, so it sues Ned. Okay, if it says sues Ned, that means that they have doing some kind of, you know, possible judicial type foreclosure. Okay. Uh, Ned may be held responsible for the deficiency because he was never released from liability on the mortgage when it was assumed by Sam. Now, I'm sure there are enough people out there in TV land and in the real estate business that will tell me something like, well, you know, that's not exactly how it's going to happen. I'm here to tell you that I've seen it happen like that a bunch of times. Uh, You've got to be very, very careful with what you're dealing with. You know, I mean, you know, the, unless you're released from liability, you're going to get stuck with this. And if you want to know, has it ever happened to anybody? Yes. Has it ever happened to somebody like me? Yes. So I have had where all of a sudden, 
you know, you get the famous phone call, your house is in foreclosure, and you go, which house? You know, I don't have that house. I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. Your name is still on it. So that can happen. Okay, alienation clause. The seller's existing mortgage may contain an alienation clause, which is designed to restrict the seller's right to transfer the property. That's the whole idea behind that. It's to protect the lender. Um, the clause may be triggered by the transfer of title or by a transfer of significant interest in the property, e.g. a long-term lease, you know, like I'm going to lease this thing for 30 years to somebody. The alienation clause may not give the lender, I'm sorry, the alienation clause may give the lender the right to declare the entire amount of balance immediately due and payable and the right to raise the interest rate on the loan or the right to do either at its option. Now, sometimes people will turn around and say, well, listen, how in the world is the lender ever going to find out? How are they ever going to find out? They don't have people riding around in little cars or on motorcycles going to houses and checking who lives there. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, there's a lot of different ways that the lender can end up finding out just by sometimes sheer accident. Uh, things like changes in insurance companies. Uh, things like uh, pe people inquiring about things like uh, maybe if I sell the property to something uh, to somebody and maybe they're assuming a loan I may be uh, you know there might be an, inqui an inquiry on the buyer's part on you know to the lender well how much more money do I owe and they go well, you don't owe any money it's Pat is the one that owes money and all of a sudden it triggers it so it could be maybe not happen right that day or that month or that year but it could happen in some point in the future so that's why you want to Sort of keep that in mind that there are a lot of different ways that things can be triggered and the lender can find out that you may not have even thought of. Okay. So anyway, that's one way. So one of the ways that we do this is where we have an existing mortgage. We have some equity in the property. The person comes in. They put a down payment, enough of a down payment so that the lender or so that the seller is able to, uh, so that we can just get the down payment, get the the, uh, and allow the buyer to take over the existing loan. A second type of situation you may run into is where you have a purchase money second. So in other words, what ends up happening in that particular case is that the seller of the property has a large enough amount of equity in it that the normal average buyer cannot walk in the door with the cash to put as a down payment. As an example, if I had a piece of property that I was trying to sell for, say, $300,000, and maybe I have a mortgage on that property for, say, $225, I would be looking for a seller to come in with $75,000 to take over that property. That can be very difficult to find. So it might be where what I'll do is I may have where I'll make arrangements to have the buyer take over my existing $225,000 loan They'll go out and get a second. In other words, I'm not the one that's going to be giving the second. They're going to go to somebody else and get a second, and then they're going to come in with a down payment. So, for example, they may come in and say, okay, I'll put $25,000 down. I'm going to get a second in the amount of $50,000 from this lender, and I'm going to take over your first. So that's the kind of a program that we're talking about there. Where would you use something like that where you possibly have an attractive first loan or first uh, note, and um, the seller has the ability to qualify for that second in order to buy that property. And, and third, you want, you want or need all of your money out of the, out of the property altogether. So we're bringing in an institutional type 
or even a non-institutional, maybe another private party, but you're not making the loan, somebody else is making the loan, okay? So they go through this and they say, they give you some examples here. They say even in, in cases where there, let me see if I can get this up. Even in cases where there are, there is an assumable loan or where the buyer can obtain financing from an institutional lender, it may be beneficial for the seller to provide additional financing in the form of a second mortgage. Okay, I'm sorry, I was getting a little bit ahead of myself. Here's the example that they're giving here for, uh, I'll go on from there. It says, mortgage or second deed of trust. If the buyer does not have sufficient cash to cover the difference between the sales price and the institutional financing, a purchase money second can be the key to closing. And they give you an example here. They say George Hatfield owns a property with an existing $45,000 mortgage on it. The mortgage is assumable and has 120 payments at $582.30 per month remaining. Uh, Ray McCa uh, McCarthy is, is interested in buying the property but does not have the $55,000 cash needed to meet the sales price of $100,000. Ray offers to buy the house with a $20,000 payment if George will take back a second deed of trust for the remaining $35,000. George sees the sale finalized. Okay, so that's just an example of carrying back. I'm sorry, I was getting a little bit ahead of myself, where the, the property was selling for $100,000. There was an existing $45,000 loan on it. What was happening is, is there was $55,000 of equity on it. The person was coming in with a down payment of $20,000, and there was going to be a second that was going to be carried for $35,000. So that was just an example of that. Okay, and that second, by the way, not, not to beat this death, but that second could have been carried by, uh, you know, could have been, uh, you know, the seller could have carried that. The seller could have made that loan and then turned around and sold that loan to somebody else. Or, in, in many cases, the, the buyer could have went out and got second financing for that and the seller not carried it. Okay, next thing. And this, this is starting to get to be a little bit, um, if you will, complex uh, in this particular case. And were these types of loans, when they talk about, uh, the next one we're going to be talking about is something called the wraparound or an all-inclusive note and deed of trust. With these very popular, I have seen some of them, not many of them. It wasn't like uh, all of a sudden everybody and, and, and his brother was getting involved in these all-inclusive notes and deeds of trust, but they are something that you will see or hear people talk about. So it, it bears importance that we at least go over and discuss a little bit about what they are. And uh, you'll have to stay with me because these things get to be a little bit intricate in trying to follow what's really going on here. But I think that we have uh, some examples in here uh, that I can go through and show you. So I'm going to read this so that we make sure that we have this. Okay. And some of this in the beginning, I have to stop as we go to make sure that I cover it. So it says, a seller-sponsored wraparound financing. The term wraparound means just like we would like a wrapper. Okay, think about this for a minute. You know, use the think of wrapping as being I'm putting something around a bunch of stuff. We wrap presents for Christmas where we take one piece of paper and we wrap around it. Okay, here what we're talking about, um, we take candy and we put a wrapper around it. Okay. Like uh, M&M's has a wrapper around it. Okay, so it's a wrapper. It includes a lot of stuff. 
When we talk about a wraparound and its basic conceptual idea means that what happens is, is that there's an existing loan. There's an existing loan on the property. The seller also has equity in the property. And then rather than having the buyer assume the, uh, the, um, the seller's existing loan and then have the seller carry back a second loan, what they do is the seller creates this wraparound that includes the first and their equity in one package. Okay, As a very simple example, and I'll go through one that they have in the book, if I had a piece of property that I was going to sell for $100,000, and let's say, for example, that uh, I owed $50,000 on the property, what I would be talking about in a wraparound is if I had that $100,000 piece of property and I said to a buyer, okay, this is what the deal is. I want you to come in and give me $10,000 down, okay, $10,000 down payment. And rather than have them harry, have me carry back a second, what I do is I, I cre create this wraparound that includes the $50,000 loan plus the $40,000 in equity and create one loan out of the whole thing, if you will. So what essentially ends up happening is when the buyer makes payments to me, they're making payments to me that include the payments for the first loan and for my equity. For the first loan and for my equity. So what ends up happening is when I get that payment from the buyer on a monthly basis, I turn around and part of that payment I remit back on the loan to whoever it is that I borrowed the money to. And the remaining part happens to be the interest that I earn on that equity part. Okay, now keep in mind that's what we're doing. We're wrapping it. So let me go through what this is. It says the wraparound mortgage is or all-inclusive trust deed is a device sometimes used in place of an assumption. Okay, sometimes. By using a wraparound installment mortgage sales contract, the seller can pass on the benefit of the existing loan at a lower than market interest rate, even if the buyer is unwilling to directly assume the loan. Okay. Now, you may be doing this because maybe the buyer for whatever reason can't financially qualify for it. Again, we're getting on very, very touchy territory, you know, where you really have to have your clients knowing what they're getting themselves into. The wrap is sometimes used to get around the provisions of the alienation clause, which limits the ability to assume a loan. Okay? Again, if the lender finds out that you allowed somebody else to buy the property, and they have an alienation clause in that deed of trust. They can call that. They can call that loan anytime that they want to because you violated the contract. The reason why I think the author put this statement in there is because in the late 70s and the early 80s, one of the purposes of the all-inclusive note and deed of trust was to try not to let the lender know that what was going on. Okay. Since then, there has been a lot of laws that have been passed to toughen that alienation clause, okay? So, you know, lenders have gotten very, very tough on that. Okay. If the lender becomes aware of the subterfuge, the transaction can be foreclosed under the terms of the alienation clause, okay? So, again, if the lender finds out that you have, you've been deceiving them, they can just call that loan due and payable, and you can end up with a big mess on your hands. Okay. So then they go through an example here, and you're going to have to bear with me because there's some math in this to keep track of. Okay, example. Mary, I uh, cannot pronounce that last name, but it looks like Cuddy, I guess, 
wants to sell her home for $91,000. I wish they would make these numbers even, by the way, but $91,000. There's an existing $32,000, 8% deed of trust on the property. Okay. Jeff Cochran offers to buy with a $20,000 down and a seller finance second. Okay, so we're giving some facts of the case here. Okay. Continue on from there. It says $20,000 second deed of trust, okay, for the balance of $71,000. Under the terms of the agreement, a portion of Jeff's monthly payment will be used to make the payment on Mary's loan, which remains a lien on the property. So, in other words, the loan that Mary owes is going to stay on the property, okay? Now, in this case, just so we can clarify this, too, under this all-inclusive note and deed of trust, the title to the property is going to pass to the buyer. This is not like a contract of sale, which we talked about with, uh, with uh, Calvet. The actual title will be transferred from one person to the other, Okay. Okay, so it says, the attractiveness of the, all, of the wraparound is that it enables the buyer to obtain financing at a low market interest rate while still providing, okay, um, yeah, still providing a market rate of return for the seller. An example will illustrate this apparent uh, contradiction. Okay, so let's go through this. I, they give you an example. They say, seller Johnson has $51,000, 10% trust deed against his property. Okay, that's what he owes. And he owes the payments at 10%. He sells to Abernathy, who happens to be the buyer, for $69,000 with $8,000 down. The $61,000 balance is secured by a wraparound deed of trust at 12%. Bear with me. These are just the facts. Interest based on a 30-year amortization with a balloon payment for the entire balance in 15 years. Okay. Seller Johnson will receive 12% interest on the $61,000 wraparound, but has actually extended only $10,000 credit. Now, let's go through the facts and see if we can make any sense out of this. First of all, the sales price of the property is $69,000. That's what it's being sold for. The person's coming in with a down payment of $8,000. The underlying trust deed happens to be for $51,000, Okay. So in reality, what's happening is that if we take the 51 plus the 8, 51 plus the 8 ends up being 59, $59,000. And what's happening is the sales price is $69,000. So that's where we get that the, that the seller is actually giving the new buyer a $10,000 loan. Okay, that's how that works. Go through that one more time. Make sure everybody gets this. We have a sales price of $69,000. The buyer's coming in with an $8,000 down payment. They're going to go ahead and there's an existing loan of $51,000. If we take the $51,000 plus the $8,000, that's $59,000. If we take the 59 minus 69, that means that there's $10,000 in equity, or that's the amount that's being extended to the buyer. Okay, That's the loan that's being made by the seller to the buyer, if you will. Now, how does this break out? Number one, to determine the seller's yield on this, in other words, how much is the seller earning on their money? Okay, that's what they're trying to do here. Okay, to calculate the interest the seller will receive on the first year on the wraparound trustee, we take the $61,000 times 12%. 
okay? That means that there's going to be $7,320. That happens to be what the interest is that's going to be paid on the loan. That's on the overall loan. Now, let me make this really clear. What this means is that we're going to have one document that the buyer signs saying that what their interest rate's going to be and how when they're going to make their monthly payments and everything else, and there's a note that's signed, and there's a deed of trust that's recorded, okay? So what's that, all that's saying is, is that the buyer, for the first year, and we're using first year because what we're doing is we're just calculating interest based on the first year. But the important thing is, is that what we're doing is saying this is how much interest that the seller is receiving on that overall loan, Okay? Now, if I want to calculate my yield, how much money I'm actually making, what I have to do is I have to calculate the interest the seller will pay the same year on the underlying trustee. So in other words, what's happening is, bar everything else, there's a $51,000 loan against the property right now. The seller is paying that loan at 10% interest per year. The seller is taking and paying $5,100 per year. Okay. So what the seller does is they receive $7,320 from the buyer, and they pay whoever the lender happens to be $5,100. That's what they're paying, okay? The difference between this is how much interest they're earning, how much interest the seller is earning, okay? So now if I turn this over to determine their yield, this is how I do it. I take the $7,320 that I received from the buyer. I minus from that the $5,100 that I turn around and pay the lender on the first loan. That leaves me a net, if you will, amount of money that I receive in my pocket of $2,200 per year. How do I figure out how much I actually earn on that money? This is how I do it. I divide the net interest to the seller by the amount of credit actually extended. Remember, I only am lending the lender or lending the buyer $10,000, but I'm actually earning $2,220 per year. If I do the math, I'm actually getting a 22% return on my money on that $10,000. And if you think about it, that can be a fairly substantial amount of money. When you really look at this, uh, what's happening is that, you know, in, in these interest rates that are in the book here are, you know, why the author picked 10 and 20, 10 and 15 percent and 12 percent, I think, is just because to, to kind of symbolize, if you will, what kind of interest rates you would really be paying if you had these kinds of markets going on. In other words, you're not really going to get into this creative financing until you start getting into 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 percent interest rates. You know, you're not, this wouldn't make any sense if it was at 3 or 4 percent. But as you can see, there's a big incentive for the seller to be able to do this. Okay? Uh, they are earning a fairly substantial amount of money on this particular loan, or on this particular thing, because they're earning interest also on that excess amount that they have that they earn from uh, on that difference in the 2% that they earn from uh, on, that, on that existing first loan that they have on the property. So there's a big incentive for sellers to do this. Okay? That would be their incentive. Why would they want to do that? Uh, or why, uh, what's nice, the, and the reason why they're earning that kind of interest rate is that they're taking a pretty large risk. Okay? Um, 
Let me go through this and make sure we've done everything. It said stated more simply, the seller is paying out $5,100 a year in interest on the original deed of trust and is receiving $7,320 interest on the wrap from the buyer on the overall loan. This leaves the seller with a net gain of $2,220. The amount of credit actually extended to the seller under the wrap is only $10,000. So the seller is receiving $2,220 in interest payments on $10,000. Very hard to get that kind of return. <laughs> okay. The yield on the credit extended is thus 22%. If the market interest rates are at 12.5, the seller is receiving 9.5% over the market rate, while the buyer is paying 5%. Uh, 0.5% below the market rate. So the buyer has actually got, it's helping the buyer out too. If the, uh, rate while the buyer is paying 5.5% per, uh, uh, below market. Even if the rate changed by the seller, charged by the seller on the wrap is not below the market rate, the arrangement may still be attractive to the buyer because the greater flexibility of seller financing. Okay. Uh, the example shows the excellent return is available to the seller when the amount of credit actually extended by the seller is relatively small. Now, a lot of cases, this kind of, uh, of financing, by the way, there's a certain segment of the marketplace, investors that like these kinds of loans and deal with these kinds of loans, that buy these kinds of loans, uh, there's a company in town called Money Brokers. Uh, Bill Watson, who uh, owns the company, uh, um, came in and spoke to our internship class. Uh, people that usually are the types that want to um, invest, you know, maybe or have a choice between stocks, bonds, mutual funds, owning real estate outright, will look at these as being a certain kind of an investment that will give them a high rate of return. So uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that some of these things that seem to be sort of complicated right now, there is a marketplace if the seller does need to sell these and get some cash out of them. Um, and it's a very specialized area, and that's why, in many cases, going back to the late 70s and early 80s, when, when a lot of this was going on, when I experienced a lot of it going on, a lot of those lenders like uh, that do these kinds of purchases of these loans from sellers later on, usually the best thing for an, a real estate agent to do, if you're going to get involved in this kind of a thing, is contact one of those people to have them help you or assist you or guide you or let you know some of the things that you need to do in order to prepare that kind of a loan for future sale to possibly one of their investors. Usually what ends up happening with loans like that is a seller may carry something back like this, turn around and receive payments for six months or a year. Uh, we call that, in, in, in the terms, we call that seasoned paper, which means that we've had a track record that the buyer has been making their monthly payments. And what will end up happening is, is that people that uh, are working with investors probably will have somebody that will be willing to buy that loan from the seller. And the thing that you want to keep in mind, though, too, when they do buy it, they're going to buy it at a discount, and there will be a brokerage fee for it. But just I want to let you know that there is a marketplace for these kinds of loans to be sold in the future. Okay, so we talked about this all-inclusive note and deed of trust. Um, they go on a little bit further. They talk about a wrap versus an assumption um, plus a second. So let me go through here and read this so that you get some sort of a general idea. We may have to pick up this on the second time. This happens to be a wrap. What they're trying to do is trying to contrast a wraparound loan, wraparound, all-inclusive note and deed of trust, 
versus an assumption. So in other words, where you would have two different ways that you could do it, and you're trying to contrast the two different ways. So what I'm going to show you on the next page, and probably where we'll pick up the next time, is where they're contrasting the two of them. And this does not hurt if you're trying to understand this to take a look at the two different ways that this can be done. Okay? Just to give you an idea, up at the top of the column, this is the wraparound. This is the information for the wraparound. This is the information for an assumption and a second. Okay? So we go down here and we say, okay, here's the sales price. The sales price happens to be, in, in both cases, is $100,000. The down payment in both cases is $20,000. The balance financed, what's going to happen is, is that if the seller carries back and creates a wrap, what will end up happening is they're actually financing $80,000 at 12%. Okay. Over here, what you do is you have where the seller is going to make arrangements for the buyer to take over an existing $60,000 loan at 9% and going to turn around and they'll carry their equity in the form of 12%. Okay. So keep in mind, just kind of stop for a minute and take a breath here. What's ending up happening is that here you have where the seller is going to be getting a, a return, a gross return on that amount of money of 12% of 80000 In this case, they're only going to get 12% on $20,000 because of the fact that the buyer is going to just straight out assume the second. Okay? Going down be below here, it says the credit extended by the buyer. In this case, the, buyer is the seller is only giving the buyer $20,000 in credit. In this case, it's the same situation. Okay, that's the only amount of credit you're really giving. What's happening here is this uh, approximate yield on the seller. Here, the seller is receiving 21% return, and here they're receiving 12%. Now, you may say, well, why in the world? How, do we, how did you come up with that? The reason why is because they're getting 12% on the $20,000, plus they're getting the difference between the, in other words, when we pay that lender, we're paying them 9% on that loan, okay, but we're actually charging the buyer 12%. So we're making 3%, if you will, of $60,000. That's what we're doing. And the next time I'm going to pick up on this, I'm going to try to make sure to hopefully go over this well enough that you understand what's basically going on. Where do you see this? You need to be aware of it. You need to be aware of when people are making offers and they start talking about this kind of financing, what in the world it's about, where you need to start calling your real estate broker and saying, I need some help, I have an offer, and I don't understand this stuff. That's where I'd kind of like to leave you today. You need to be aware of this. The next time we're going to go over some more details of these kinds of programs so you become more and more aware of what's out there. With that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time for the next show. See you later. Bye-bye.